0: My name is David Breer. Welcome to the very first Fintech Insider. We're really glad for to you to join us today and we've got a really good show ahead. We started up Fintech Insider for a number of reasons, but firstly, I should probably introduce to you the hosts so I can give you a little bit more of the rationale after that. On a weekly basis, you're going to be hearing from some of the smartest people in the industry. First up, we've got Jason Bates. Jason has started not one, but two challenger banks in the UK with both Starling and one of my favorites, Mondo, or whatever they end up being called, I guess. Beyond this, Jason has taught at Facebook and Google, as well as a string of other successful startups. Jason is one of the founders at 11FS with me. Say hello, Jason. Hey there. Next up, we've got Chris Skinner. Chris is probably one of the most recognizable people in banking strategy and fintech right now. He's an author of a bunch of awesome books, the most recent of which is, is Value Web, which if you haven't checked it out, you really should do. Chris is like a one-man analyst team producing more content and speaking at more conferences than pretty much all of the big four research firms. And I should add, probably doing a better job at doing it as well. When he isn't doing those things, he's also leading the Banking as a Blockchain Funds, which we've all started up investing in early, chain, early stage distributed ledger and smart contract startups. So, Chris.
1: Hey, Dave and Jason. Here I am.
0: Lastly, we've got Simon Taylor, and Simon, in my mind, is a a kind of a bit of a legend. Most recently, Simon was the vice president responsible for research and development for blockchain at Barclays Bank, which, if nothing else, is the most awesome title I've ever heard. Um, Simon is now the co-founder and director of blockchain at 11FS and working very closely with Chris on the fund. Say hello, Simon.
2: Hello, Simon,
0: and everyone else. (laughs) So why did we start up FinTech Insider in the first place? Well, sort of between the four of us, we have some pretty good experience and through what we all do on a day-to-day basis, have access to some of the most interesting people in banking and fintech. I could be founders of some of small startups or key figures in, in regulators and governments. Being sort of good British gentlemen that we are, we were all having sort of a good conversation in a, in a pub recently. And I, I think at around midnight, we got chatting about why there wasn't a podcast about doing pretty much the type of thing that we were doing that night. Um, now, for me and the guys, the, the best podcasts out there really are the ones that have a few things in common. It's sort of high production quality and value, consistently high quality guests, obviously, and then a good mix of experience between, between the hosts. Most importantly for me, it's that they are good fun as well. So that's obviously something we'll be sort of bringing in. We've decided to go the podcast route rather than a live show, as we want the production quality to be as high as it can be. And we want to really sort of carve out the most interesting 60 plus minutes on a topic that on the basis that you are already tuned in, we, we know you're going to be interested in. The four of us will bring you the latest news from around the globe in fintech banking and anything else that we find interesting for that matter. Along with us, we've actually managed to sign up some of the most eminent news reporters, TV presenters, and journalists from around the globe for additional perspectives on what it is that their audiences are reading and and watching. We'll also be sort of peppering the show with interviews from some of the brightest minds around the globe in fintech and, and banking. So we hope you'll enjoy it as much as we enjoy doing it for you. We have some really exciting news about the sponsors in a few weeks, and I think over the next few weeks, we'll start leaking out who the next set of guests will be. I should probably introduce the guests that we've got on on this week to go with the the host so sophie Gibbard from from who is the vice president of european expansion at fidor and we've got anna herrera who is the reporter at the financial news which is part of the wall street journal the key thing we're going to be going through today is brexit and i think it'll be quite cathartic for everybody to try and sort of get all of that off their chest but as we sort of go through there's probably a bunch of other things that we probably should start off and and talk through so jason do you want to open us up with something else that's been happening in the market now
3: yeah hey there so something that really caught my eye this week was an article on uh, payments.com and i'll post the link on the 11fs twitter uh, feed so that's at uh, the number 11 FS team. And so payments.com, that's payments without any of the vowels in that sort of fintech way, did a piece of uh, research with InfoScout um, looking at Apple Pay. And Apple Pay is something I've been sort of semi-obsessed with for a few months now, and I guess not for good reasons. I've I've always had this sort of suspicion that maybe it isn't going as well, you know, as as many people say. And, um, And for something with so much buzz, there seem to be surprisingly few numbers and stats. So InfoScout did this quite interesting piece where they they actually stood at checkouts and asked people who – this this was in the U.S. – asked people who were walking through with iPhones and, you know, the the retailers uh, could do NFC sort of payments so that they, uh, they could actually use Apple Pay if they wanted to. And then they watched people come through, saw what they actually did, and then asked them about, you know, why they had or had not used Apple Pay. So I guess the interesting fact sort of to, to pull out of it was that only one person in 20 had, who had used the service before w- was actually using it. There's just this big drop off. And the fraction of people who said that they rarely considered it was something like a third of the people who'd used the product. I think as a, like a product designer, that's not something you want to hear when you know, so many people sort of have it on their phone, have tried it, and then leave. So so it, it occurred to me, and I guess it's something I, I was interested in, just the, uh, you know, other guys on the call's views, that the early adopters just, just don't seem to be finding the benefit. You know, it, it seems to be novel. If you've got Apple Watch, it's, it's pretty damn cool. But it just doesn't seem to be a push for me for sort of merchants or consumers. It's just not 10 times better than a card. So um, so I don't know. I, I don't know what you guys think. But it, it just seems to be like something that people talk about at conferences, but you just don't see in the press or on the, on the web.
1: Yeah, Jason, I think there's two or three issues with Apple Pay. I mean, basically, it doesn't offer a particularly convenient form factor versus a card in that you have to get the phone out and tap it. It's just as easy to get a card out and tap it. I think when people use the Apple Watch, when that's contactless, it's far easier because you've got the watch ready to go on your wrist. You don't actually have to make a conscious decision to use A or B. And it's just intriguing because, I mean, I've got an iPhone, I don't actually use Apple Pay, and it's not because I don't think it's needed, it's just that it doesn't really offer me an, an incentive to use it. I have to have some form of reason for using it over and above other form factors that I'm used to, and I think that's the issue that most people have, that it doesn't offer something over and above yeah
0: i 'd agree with that i um, you know I wanted it so badly to to be amazing you know i've kind of I remember when it sort of first came out, we were all getting quite giddy at the the sort of prospect, but exactly as you say chris really it doesn 't offer me anything over and above. Actually just using a contactless card, which in most instances, like, you know, the only reason that I've really used it in most recent times is when they started giving you free travel on the London Underground for for using it, which, like you say, is a a very short term incentive for no real sort of long term benefit. So yeah, it's disappointing. Do you you sort of think think this is how it'll play out?
1: You need those short term incentives to get people to change behaviours. And that's the real challenge, that it's a behavioural change that at the moment Apple Pay has rolled out the platform but not provided the incentive to change behaviours.
2: the the TFL thing worked really well for contactless because uh, once you used an Oyster card, it was a slicker experience. Whereas the amount of times you see people stuck, especially in London, trying to use their Apple Pay to get on the tube, getting frustrated, giving up with it and getting their card out um, is is quite consistent. So I think until that experience is um, Apple-like, it's going to be a bit of a problem. And quite out of form for Apple, it's usually that they will you know, wait till the experience is so perfect before they deem the you know, world worthy of this experience. This actually seems to be one example where it, it's not really worked as, as hoped. Um, and I think the complexity of the payments industry and, and payments terminals have kind of gotten in their way. There, it needs to be more simple, not more more complex, as it appears to be.
3: But I think there's also you- that thing around battery life for me as well, because you know you you can't leave your card at home knowing that your you know phone's going to, going to be sort of perfect. And always be able to do every payment you know I think there 's confusion probably with how much you know what what 's the limit you know how much can you spend on it, and also that you know that that point where you 're on your way home and you find out your battery's dead, and you know it 's the only payment mechanism you have with you, so it doesn 't have that sort of ubiquitous nature as well but I, I think the thing that that just interests me around this whole thing is was is that there was such buzz you know people were virtually picketing outside Barclays just to tell them to, to take this on. And yet, you know, when you ask people and when you watch people sort of, you know, using it or not using it, it it's just not there. It strikes me as something really like bizarre around this sort of fintech early adopter bubble.
0: Should, um, should I sort of state the obvious slightly as well? Do you, think the, do you think the results of this would be quite different if they were done in the UK? You know, obviously the US are literally only getting rid of wet signatures sort of as we speak type thing. So do you think if they conducted a similar piece of research in the UK, it would actually be a lot higher?
3: So I've I've asked a lot of people around a lot of conferences, and there are all kinds of NDAs in place, so very few people will tell me uh, anything. But most people seem to nod and suggest that, you know, that that it's, It probably, those kinds of figures hold for the UK as much as the US.
0: Worrying. Well, hopefully they are sort of pushed to do something slightly more interesting then and, like say, increase the adoption of it because, uh, you know, change is always good in something like this. There's another element up here. So, Simon, there's fixing the hole in Ethereum, which actually sort of feels like quite an interesting thing to talk about with regards to the Dow.
2: Sure. So uh, if any of you have seen the movie Inception, I'm going to have to take you down a few levels into the, into the weeds of, of what is Ethereum and what is the DAO. So let me, let me kind of step back through that and, and kind of unpick it all. Fun movie references aside, there's actually a few bits here. Uh, so the first thing is there's a cryptocurrency called Ethereum. For those, those of you who have heard of Bitcoin, Ethereum is kind of a challenger to that works somewhat differently somewhat the same and they, they kind of grew out of the same idea but trying to fix some of the ideas in bitcoin and ethereum was bumbling along quite nicely hitting some headlines you know really doing some some interesting things and then along comes a project built on ethereum in the same way that you can build a house on some land um, it's not really Ethereum project that was kind of at fault initially. Uh, It was the people who built on Ethereum. And this this group of people, uh, based out of Germany, um, by the name of Slock.it, built something called a DAO, also known as a digital autonomous organization, which sounds like something out of Transformers, but actually is intended to be uh, an organization that governs itself. So you might today form a company by creating some articles of association, getting some lawyers and getting some humans together and saying, we now have a company that is incorporated that does these things. The idea here was to do that in software. And what they said with software is, what what they intended to build was an autonomous organization that ran a bit like a venture capital firm that had no humans. And indeed, the Wall Street Journal and uh, Forbes and, and others reported that the first kind of venture capital firm without humans had raised $150 million. And so for a time, you know, there was, there was quite a bit of buzz about this thing. Was this the next big thing in the internet? There was a lot of hype and a lot of excitement. You know, a, a venture capital firm without humans has $150 million? Well, it seems like that's all sort of somewhat unraveled a bit in the last few weeks. It turns out before the Dow went live and before it got $150 million, there were some quiet voices uh, suggesting that, Actually, there were some bugs in the underlying Ethereum software, so kind of the foundation that the DAO was built on, that would mean you could hack and steal that money, which you know kind of was a bit scary, but the DAO team went ahead and kind of built their project anyway, believing that they could fix it over time. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, the inevitable happened. The hack began, um, and a hacker was able to steal $60 million of $150 million, leading to all of the people who'd basically invested in this DAO, this crowdfunding platform, this venture capitalist without people, to start losing their money without any recompense, without any way of dealing with getting their money back. So you had users who'd invested in this VC firm without people that were annoyed. You had the cryptocurrency community annoyed. And then you had the DAO team in the middle of it trying to figure out what to do and the Ethereum team trying to figure out what to do. And their answer was to do something called a soft fork. So this would basically mean that within Ethereum, you have about 29 days from whenever any any kind of transaction has been done to kind of make a change before it's actually finally committed. And the idea was this would be give them the options to be able to fix any problems like this, should they arise. It it seems like quite a, quite a good idea. But the problem is the fix that the Ethereum guys have proposed, in other words, fixing this $60 million hole in the Dow and the underlying software would rely on creating another vulnerability. So now there are critics saying, if you fix Ethereum, you're now going to create more problems for yourselves. And so now the DAO is left in a state where there are about 10 days before the $60 million goes missing. And nobody knows how to fix it. And there's this real interesting struggle and battle for souls happening in in the cryptocurrency community in terms of what do we actually do next? Do we empower somebody like Vitalik Buterin, the fabled creator of Ethereum, to have kind of control? well, no, that would go against everything that Ethereum stands for. So what, what do they do? There's this really interesting kind of debate. So it would be interesting to watch this one rumble on and, and the clock is ticking and time is running out. And one thing you can say for sure is it's a real credibility issue for the cryptocurrency space. But it often signals to me why you know, banks and others are starting to look at the ideas behind cryptocurrency rather than just the projects out there themselves.
3: So how's the share price on currency um, Ether doing then?
2: So Ether actually launched about sort of 18 months ago, a year ago it was. It was pegged at one dollar per Ether, um, and I think it's now running around 12, 13 dollars per Ether. Um, so over a, a one-year time frame, that's actually quite good. But about two months ago, it was around about 20 dollars. So it's taken a hit, but albeit you know, in the scale of cryptocurrency volatility, that isn't the worst. In the world i think what's more concerning is that you would use ether to buy dow tokens and these tokens weren't actually the underlying cryptocurrency it's almost like going to a supermarket and giving in your um cash in dollars or sterling and in return getting some you know retailer vouchers tesco sainsbury's whatever your your retailer might be and these vouchers can only be spent to that retailer but then that retailer is shut down and now these vouchers are useless and you want to get your cash back that's the position that a lot of users are stuck in Um, That have invested in this in this Dow fund
1: I think what this illustrates Simon is the early stage nature of everything to do with cryptocurrencies and blockchain itself which is an awful lot of Variations and different themes as I blogged the other day 50 shades of blockchain You know and the, the experiment is the Bitcoin experiment the ether experiment. These are experimental currencies They're not yet ready for prime time as demonstrated but as we go through these learning experiences, which is painful for those who lose money in these early stages, you'll get to the stage where eventually you will get a bulletproof cryptocurrency in the public blockchain. What that will be, you know, Bitcoin 4.0 or whatever it is, we don't
3: know, but it is coming does it sort of put a dent into the whole kind of smart contract world as well? It seemed at one point that everyone was suggesting that, you know, lawyers would disappear and, you know, forget about arbitration, you know, write a good smart contract, a piece of code that embodies everything that you, you know, the administration of of some fund or something. And does this kind of show that actually that's a lot more difficult to do than than people thought?
2: The term smart contract was always a, a bit of a misnomer, really. It's, it's, not a smart contract. It's a dumb script, but it's a dumb script that can do very interesting things. So the idea that you could automate some legal processes, I think, is a long way from you can incorporate the company. And actually, if you were to look at the spectrum of things you can do with cryptocurrency-based software or blockchain-based software, there are things that it can do today that actually make a lot of sense for businesses and banks and others to start implementing in, in a live environment, I would say. But actually, with experimental software, you would do a lot of things around it that that are due diligence-based and and based on today's software to make that safe and secure, and then still get some of the benefits of of the smart contract element of a blockchain. I've seen some examples of that, and I'd say it's entirely relevant. But maybe kind of having an entire company incorporated in smart contract or a digital autonomous organization might be a bit of a stretch. That isn't to say it'll never happen, but I suspect, you know, people will start with the lower hanging fruit first. And indeed, from what I'm hearing inside of the large organizations and, and kind of other places as well is that the, this hasn't really been, hasn't slowed anybody down that knew that this was kind of coming anyway. So if you're in a large organization, you looked at the Dow and sort of thought, this, this can only go wrong, whereas, well, not necessarily if you're in a large organization, but if you're in certain types of organization doing things that are, I think, closer to being delivered today. And I think the, the open source community will adapt, will learn, and will build something new from its learning.
0: I think it's it's really interesting, isn't it? You know, like say it is a it is an, an experiment, but you know, with that amount of money in it, it is amazing how these these things sort of catch like wildfire, isn't it? You know, they sort of catch people's imagination and sort of the money sort of rolls into them, doesn't it? That's really interesting. Maybe if we we sort of you know move past the appetizers then into the main course, with regards to what we're sort of all, to, all together to talk about today, which is which is Brexit. You know, having sort of lived through the last week or so, it kind of feels like we need one of those previously on statements you get at the beginning of game of thrones for me so i think the best one of those that i've seen regards to a bit of a summary is one of the ones that i read on buzzfeed so if you want to go check that out it's by luke bailey and tom phillips which you know i kind of draw a lot of my around the edges sort of learning on so maybe let's go through a little bit of bit of that just to kind of um, get everybody onto the same place so uh, you know Given the previously on Brexit piece, uh, you know, it was just over a week now, really, isn't it, in terms of when we actually sort of saw the piece coming through. The UK narrowly voted to leave the European Union in a referendum that ended up 48 to 51, which, you know, in anybody's book is is kind of pretty close. The referendum campaign had been full of warnings from experts about the dire consequences of leaving, which, you know, senior anti-EU politicians dismissed as, as pretty much total nonsense. It became pretty clear as soon as the results came in, as the pounds sort of dropped off the cliff and billions of pounds were worth wiped off share value although some of that has started to come back now that that some of those sort of forecasts were were probably on the, the money we've had some interesting times the british prime minister david cameron who said he absolutely wouldn't be resigning if a leave vote came in immediately announced that he would be resigning as a result of the leave vote which is which is quite interesting uh, for me the sort of the weekend after that was sort of full of you know wtf conversations with arguments with friends and family in a very sort of british sense you know most of them were conducted at village fates and on facebook so we all sort of returned to work on monday to see if the world sort of still existed the funnest thing that i kind of experienced on this point was really it turned out as it sort of played out in the media that nobody actually made a plan to sort of figure out what it would happen if we all voted to leave. So, you know, I think even the leave campaigners were all a bit surprised and kind of instead of sort of working the weekend to figure out what would happen it seems most of them buggered off to Glastonbury which is kind of an interesting way to celebrate I guess. Also pretty much immediately at the start of the week that when we also sort of came back into work was that the campaign who actually moved for the leave side of things actually started admitting that most of the promises that they put up weren't actually promises. So for example the 350 million that was quoted on the side of the campaign bus that was going around you know this is the take back our money from the EU, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, turned out firstly not to be true and, and secondly not to be a commitment, which is, which is fun. So, you know, I, I think we've had lots of kind of elements that have come through here. We've had Scotland r- r- sort of uh, arguing they're going to blaspheme it. So, and almost in the conclusion, I'd say we, the UK voted to leave. The economy sort of melted down. Nobody really has a plan of what to do about it. And nobody's really taking responsibility for it. And I think that's probably a fun place to start. There's a lot more in the article that I'd recommend you to go and have a look at. But maybe as an opening point, guys, how does everybody feel about it? I I think start on a personal basis. How did everybody vote?
1: I think we all probably voted to remain, Dave. And when you're in London, London votes overwhelmingly to remain, as did Scotland and Northern Ireland, who get lots of subsidies from Europe. But people in the regions outside the big cities that get the wealth voted to leave, overwhelmingly, because they don't see that they get any help from governments either here or in Brussels. So I can quite understand why Cornwall, for example, which gets lots of EU subsidies, voted to leave because people in the countryside were disillusioned and felt disenfranchised.
0: I guess, you know, from my perspective, you know, the waking up on the morning and sort of seeing that it's changed, I didn't see this coming in any way, shape or form, did you? You know, it kind of feels like it it feels like a, a victory for sort of bad politics over over really a campaign of giving people sort of facts and, and decision making you know i kind of feel like from my side sort of aside from the outcome it kind of feels like the whole process for me it feels a little bit disappointing you know i i'm, I'm less sort of feeling a little bit embarrassed by the process in the country at the moment i'm not I'm sure what your thoughts are on that
2: yeah and i would agree with that david it, it, Simon. Uh, the, People I spoke to who really agonized over voting and then eventually came down on, on the leave side, actually, you know, kind of the one thing that we are united on is that the process itself and the you know the information in the public arena that the British public had to try and make a decision with was was woefully inadequate. And indeed, the kind of the divisiveness after the fact is has kind of been quite sad, Really, you know, typically we're a country that is I, th- I feel quite united. But then perhaps this becomes an opportunity to to reunite us a little bit. I know there's lots of talk of, of Scotland having potentially another referendum and, and others looking at the, the same sort of thing. But actually, hopefully, the people who did vote leave and who did so for you know kind of genuine reasons because they believed it would lead to a better outcome for them or their family would start to want to work with those of us who voted remain for the same reasons and try and build the strongest UK we can that's my hope maybe I'm too optimistic here but I I think that's broadly what the desire I'm hearing appears to be.
3: I think it's interesting on the the sort of you know, the pros and cons of being in Europe, you know, in the end, it's about the free movement of what is it, people, money, uh, services and goods. And some of those things, everyone wants some of those things, a fair few people don't want. And it's I think it's hard in, in the kind of current climate to, you know, you you almost want the best of both worlds, which I, I know a few politicians and economists argue, you know, just isn't possible. So you end up in that that sort of difficult decision category. But but I think there's also the sort of connecting it to broader, you know, socio-economic change. You know, things are, are are really changing, sort of, or have only just started to change. Really, down to technology and digital and globalisation. And you look at, you know, I, I guess it's cliché almost to to connect this with, you know, the rise of the far right and uh, Trump in the US. But there's a lot going on where. You know, with driverless cars, artificial intelligence, you could end up with, uh, you know, a lot of people out of work relatively quickly. So we're going through this this massive change. There was a great article in The New York Times, actually, suggesting that, you know, talking about why areas with low immigration actually voted on a kind of pro-immigration sort of promise, uh, pro, um, you know, sort of uh, closing the borders. Uh, and their, their view was that where, as as things change radically and as as the economy changes and as people start to get more fearful and wary about where everything's going that you know that it's almost a, a human nature thing to start closing down and you know the doors and you know you're not from around these parts are you and so i i, I do wonder if this is you know part of a larger mega trend that it is surprising in the you know, when you look in the kind of short term, but look in the the kind of longer scheme of things, and, you know, is this part of something bigger?
2: I would completely agree with that, Jason. I think nobody expected it to show in the UK first, But there is a a theme that's been in the the, the political press for some time that the uh, end of neoliberalism has come along. So the the late 90s, early 2000s utopia or we will have an ever-growing economy and we will continue to digitize and this will create more productivity hasn't actually worked and has left behind everybody who isn't part of the information age revolution. If you are outside of the technologies and new service uh, industries that are booming in, in a neoliberal economy, then you are very much left behind. And I think you also tend to live in a region somewhere that's away from a large city. And I think recognizing that also the income distribution to those folks has, in real terms, decreased is something that's very, very important to understand. And if you are in a region, you've been going through austerity, you're in a position where the free movement of labor has meant that people from other countries are willing to take the lower wages that actually 10 years ago, in real terms, you know, you would never have taken and you were earning a lot more than, it's very easy to scapegoat the people, you know, taking the work and undercutting you rather than looking at this kind of highfalutin kind of idealized view of the world where it's neoliberalism and the fall of that policy that's really bothering them. So they've they've voted for what they can see rather than kind of what the actual underlying kind of
1: cause is, really. And we can bring that yeah. you- round towards fintech in, in a minute, but um, in my travels, it's probably been the number one question I've been asked in Asia, Europe, uh, Africa, and America about will we remain or will we leave? And my public bet was that we would remain. Um, it was quoted from a money comp in, in Madrid. Uh, I said, I bet my house on it. Luckily, no one took the bet, so I didn't lose my house. <laughs>
4: um,
1: but at a conference I was at in Africa last Friday, the whole conversation in the build-up to my keynote which was at the end of the day was about brexit because they had economists and strategists for the bank presenting and discussing what, what, you know the impact of the vote to leave and i think it's an illustration of an anti-globalization movement as well and that um, there is a globalization of trade and world trade and, and big companies and big bonuses and at the same time there's a localization of people that are feeling threatened by that as just discussed but just to wrap up, the um, because there, there was so much discussion of Brexit before I was doing my FinTech presentation on Friday, I ended up getting the rich vein of humor that came out of Twitter and Facebook and other social media about the Brexit in terms of you know, like the seven stages of brexit shock which is then denial you know it's not legally binding is it anyway anger because it's all those old people that did the vote stupid northern racist people yeah you know, it's like bargaining because we can have a second referendum can't we i'll sign that thing on facebook that says we can yeah and it kind of just goes through all that stuff so i took all that and presented it to the crowd at the african bank con- conference and i've never had so much laughter uh, i literally with, within half an hour of presenting just got 15 things i thought was funny on facebook and twitter including particularly the donald trump scottish reaction to his tweet saying well done, you took about your country not realizing that scotland voted to remain and you know those 10 slides took me 15 minutes to get through because the audience was in stitches and it's just like it just goes to show that the one hand We thought the whole world was going to implode if we voted to leave. It hasn't. We're still exactly the same. All the rules and regulations in financial markets are exactly the same in London as they were on the Thursday before we voted to leave. And the question really is how that unravels or does it unravel? And if it doesn't unravel, then FinTech London is as strong as it's ever been. If it does unravel, we've got a problem.
0: So, so what do we i guess sort of bring it into the into focus then you know the, in order to actually leave the we have to do something called invoking article 50 don't we which sounds kind of funky if nothing else doesn't it and obviously david cameron's sort of come out and said you know we won't be doing this under under my role so i think it's october isn't it we've got till in terms of actually that is likely to happen but obviously we've got the european union putting a lot more sort of pressure on us to do it a little bit earlier you know, how how do you sort of see this playing out? You know, I, I get the impression David Cameron almost is doing a bit of it's not my job or even like this sort of American filibuster thing. I think he's going to keep everybody talking until October and then, you know, either it all goes away and we forget about it or he does type thing. Is, what's your approach on the, you know, the Article 50?
1: It's a whole house of cards thing, isn't it? In that there's a great... Um cartoon in the papers over the weekend showing Theresa May stabbing Michael Gove in the back who's stabbing Boris Johnson in the back who's stabbing David Cameron in the back and that's literally what we've seen happening and you've seen the same in the Labour Party with the whole of the shadow cabinet disappearing so the article 50 once it's invoked if it's invoked which is still a question by the way Once it's invoked, if it's invoked, we've got two years to agree the trade exit routes that we're taking and unravel hundreds of EU regulation agreements and trade agreements that have been generated over the past 40 years. Now, whoever becomes the prime minister, Theresa May, Michael Gove, or whoever, those are the two lead runners right now, will have to obviously determine when they're going to invoke Article 50, because it's going to be two years from then that we have to leave. And they may say, rather than invoke it, they need a proper mandate to invoke it, so let's have another election. So there's a whole load of uncertainties out there, and the only thing that is certain is that we are still going to trade with europe we still have a large financial market that trades through europe the one thing that will definitely disappear from the london financial markets is euro clearing which i I think that's a given and that's going to be a big hit for some of the banks in london but it's not the end of london it's not the end of fintech london
0: Mm, i agree and i think that's it's a strange thing isn't it it's a very messy divorce that everybody's going to be going through over the next sort of two years really and i think there is still sort of still the the opportunity for sort of reconciliation in parts isn't it because like you say there's there's various different connotations where it couldn't happen, or very different connotations where actually it we might end up getting back to a you know at the point where Theresa may as an example, given Boris has sort of decided it's, it's not for him, or if Gove gets in, then actually we could end up having a you know a full election at, at one point and then actually be in the situation where we're having a Kind of almost a, a referendum based off the back of a referendum to then figure out who it is takes us forward and it, you know, it
1: A different way, which is I blogged about it as well And I still think this is not 100% going to happen because no one knows what's going to happen But Theresa May for example becomes the new leader of the conservative party and prime minister for the interim, goes to Brussels and decides to try and renegotiate the free movement of peoples and the common agricultural policy and some of the sticking points that the leave campaign made them sort of focal point for re- the reason to leave, comes back with some further concessions and says, okay, well, I think we need a second re- referendum here because we've had some concessions from Europe. You know, there's so many scenarios right now that say we may or may not leave. You know, it's still not 100% certain. Some people say it is. I don't think it is like you see too many people saying it's still questionable. I
3: think there's there's the it's the mandate for change, you know, people are are, people want change or or the you know, there's a 51% of the the voters have have said change. But but I I still I guess I come back to this, you know, we I I, I love um, Chris's five stages of grief thing because it feels like we really need to get through this guys and get get through to acceptance and, and kind of doing things. And so much of the press seems to have been around sort of rehashing or bargaining or anger or denial and all of those bits. Whereas from a, you know, from a fintech startup perspective, you know, what are, what are the real impacts? Talent, market size for the, you know, the, the area, you know, we've just lost 87 million people on, on some kind of slide somewhere that someone's fundraising on. Regulation and, and probably capital on the investment side. And so for me, there's the kind of, there's the short term stuff and then there's the medium term stuff. kind of Projects because they're you know not sure where things will go how do you how do you sell into that and then there's sort of the you know dealing with it uh, seem to be sort of dealing with things while moving forward and then I guess the second piece is short term the having a voice on the direction you want things to go you know what does an exit mean what does what how does that have an effect for life kind of key questions on the how does it affect your business now because of the people who are investing or buying your services or or, you know the people you're trying to recruit to move here to work for your startup and then secondly how do you you know how do you have some kind of impact in where things are going
2: and i think very briefly jason on those two points around passporting and and, and method two is another one that comes up it seems like both of those are very much in train and, and banks are already kind of thinking about that as are a lot of fintechs I think passporting is kind of an easier one, having spoken to some sort of fintech payments companies and and FX companies and several others, which is, well, if they need to get a license in the UK, they'll get a license in the UK. Um, Perhaps they put aside a little bit of budget to to do that. They've already been kind of in dialogue about the FCA, uh, with the FCA about that. The really interesting question is, do they move their HQ or do they leave it here and do the job yeah. to stay here with it? Because that's where the talent is and that's where everything else that they need is. And, you know, kind of all the things that made London successful in the first place kind of still remain true but i think the opportunity cost of would you set up a business here because you can't passport into europe anymore is is a further interesting question and and how do we build a policy response to that and then around method two it feels like method two is very much in train and will continue to happen the question really then comes around being able to influence the implementation details of that and is it helpful for banks to be able to do that through agencies other than the British ones. And, and I think that one's still a little bit more up in the air. The you know the kind of the MIFID Two spec is largely, I think, understood. Um, there's a big debate about how to implement it, but I think that one's kind of coming anyway. There are some that have suggested MIFID Two means that Brexit means nothing. I, I would disagree with that. I think Brexit is still fundamentally important. But as Jason and Chris have pointed out, There are still so many unknowns and so many different directions things could take. Even if we go for the EEA option, what does that mean? Um, So I think thinking through some of these scenarios, if you're a fintech and you're a a bank and and anybody else in financial services, is important. But actually, with a little bit of time and energy, you can think through reasonably good mitigation strategies that that continue to allow you to be very successful in in the fintech arena.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, uh, maybe let's bring in our guests at this point, then, because I think there's, there's, we we could probably talk for the next four or five hours on this one. In fact, we have a few times before. So maybe if we bring Anna in, Anna, thanks very so much for joining. I really appreciate you taking the time to dial in today. What's your perspective of, I guess, from a personal perspective? How has this sort of left you? And what sort of um, taste is this left in your mouth with regards to the
4: uh, the vote?
5: So I'm I'm a journalist for an American company, so I'm not really allowed to share my. My personal views, but I can give you a, a broad sense. So, because I was living in London and, and covering FinTech, and the majority of people I was speaking to were for Remain, and I guess my friends were for Remain. I, I'm a EU expat, so obviously everyone was for Remain. I was pretty shocked the morning of the of the result, and then I guess speaking to other expats in finance, whether it is uh, or not just in finance, at anything, whether it is like the Italian bartender or it's the Portuguese person in, in clearing. I, I guess the sense that expats have was a bit of a shock, you never felt unwelcome and, and it's not necessarily the case that you feel unwelcome now, but something's changed. And so lots of people have told me that the, the issue for them is not really will we be allowed to stay, but is it, do we really want to stay now, is, is especially with the, these months of uncertainty, especially if you've come from a country or a part of Europe that is already un- uncertain and unstable. Do you want to stay in a place that might be like that for the next two years, and, and where you don't really feel part of what you were before? Hmm. So I think
0: I, that, <laughs> I think that's a good point because when you when you sort of look across, you know, what has made London great, you know, it's kind of ca- talent, capital. Policy in terms of what we're doing and a, a demand for change. And if suddenly, you know, the talents that we we sort of attracted starts to feel quite unwelcome in the capital, then that's not a, a good place to go, is it? In terms of doing things.
5: Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily unwelcome because if you're working for a fintech company and it, I, I assume you're, if your CEO voted to remain, I assume you're not feeling totally unwelcome the day after. But it's more, I guess, I guess, the general sense you you might have. You're, you feel I- I- European. And maybe you were in London because you wanted to stay in Europe, but didn't want to go further away. And now you're in a country where you're not sure. And for example, I was reading this morning that Theresa May this weekend said that she that the destiny, I guess, of Ux uh, expats isn't sure yet. So I guess sentences like these might make the talent feel pretty uncomfortable. Just I I don't know. I haven't I didn't see her speak. I just read what she what was reported that she said. But obviously, it doesn't make people feel very comfortable. It's someone who might become prime minister and was Remain says she might essentially use the people that are already in the UK as kind of a a pawn in, in negotiations.
0: Yeah, it feels, feels like achievement, even like you say, it's sort of slightly ironic. Theresa May was, was a sort of a big advocate for Remain and, and potentially is the, the sort of forerunner for, for the cabinet. Um, you, mm-hmm. you ran a poll, didn't you, before, before the actual results? And, and I think it, it played out sort of quite differently, didn't it? But I, I guess that, <laughs> that, that's very dependent, I guess, on who was sort of filling it out, isn't it?
5: Yeah, so, well, we polled people in FinTech, and I guess you know, most people were probably in London, um, and we asked 120 people with investors, CEOs and people working just in startups, and two-thirds said Brexit would be negative for the sector. But I guess what was what we didn't pay attention to before was, was the 17% that were undecided. So I imagine there might be people in FinTech who voted to leave but didn't want to say so before, weren't sure. And we never considered that as much as we, we looked at the two-thirds wanted to stay. But the the thing that I I found most surprising was I really could not find many people who wanted to give me the reasons why it would be positive, so I just assumed most people thought it would be negative. Yeah, it's it's an interesting
0: one. Sometimes getting people to explain their actions is, is a difficult thing to do, isn't it, when it comes down to quite a sort of a passionate feeling really doesn't it rather than sort yeah. of facts and figures and i think it might you know in my opinion i think the sort of failing of the both sides really in terms of actually giving people the real sort of ammunition to make this this process you know actually work so you know an educated decision seems like it would have been a good, good thing to do but we are where we are and i think it sort of feels like sort of as chris sort of put it really we've gone through that change curve haven't we i think the my initial reaction of kind of moving to spain type thing seems to have sort of subsided slightly but um, <laughs> I might still do it for the weather, I have to say. It might be sensible to bring in Sophie. So, Sophie, thanks so much for joining. And and I think you have got quite, I guess, a particular reason that you will be affected by this with what you do at Feedall. As I sort of said earlier on, you're responsible for European expansion with Feedall. So... I guess, how has this affected Fidel's plans in terms of, I guess, you've passported a a license into the UK, haven't you, from from Germany? What's your sort of plan A and plan B at this point?
4: Yeah. Hi, David. Thank you for uh, bringing me in. Well, I would just say that at the moment, we are really keeping on focusing on, on developing our roadmap and our product, right? Like, we don't know what we will need to do. We expect probably, like, needing to put in place a branch if, like, passporting doesn't work anymore. And the Local adaptations that we have had to put in place for change. So, like, we believe that there will still be the need for agency banking, which we are currently implementing, as well as local regulation, and that is no different from any other countries in Europe. So, because you, we have, of course, like European-wide regulations, but when you launch in a country, you need to also consider local regulation. So, things such as, for example, the CONC to to launch overdraft products will still need to be implemented, no matter what. So, for us, the UK is still very important and interesting markets. This is clearly not a market that we want to, to withdraw from because of that. And we will just keep on, needing, on doing what we need to, to do to stay in the markets, right? It just makes things a little bit complicated, potentially.
0: So I guess this is open to everybody, really. What, what do you think that will happen here in terms of, obviously, the UK has been sort of heralded as the sort of capital city of the fintech. But do we sort of see this changing now given all of the uh, you know I, I think the worst thing that markets can ever have is an uncertainty isn't it so you know at the moment we have all of this uncertainty in terms of the positioning around what might happen with resources what might happen with regulation you know things like where people were sort of licking their lips at p- things like psd2 in the uk you know really unsure at the moment whether actually even that will be needing to be implemented in the uk or not you know how sort of, Jason, how do you think this will affect our our sort of capital status?
3: Um, well, I mean, for PSD2, I think it's been pretty clear that the following on from the CMA report and tra- the Treasury's push to to get open banking APIs into the UK, I don't really see a, ch- a change on that. You know, I, I think even if PSD2 went away, which which it won't by the time we have to leave, we'll have still passed the deadline of of implementing it. And even if that wasn't the case, then as I say, the CMA recommendations following their review of PCA banking were, were pretty clear on, on wanting that to happen. I think um, there's a key thing in there as well, which is that you know, the SCA, the Bank of England, the
1: Treasury are all keen to keep the FinTech London platform as not wide and as deep as it is, and, and in fact, wider and deeper. So they're going to be pushing for PSD2, particularly as it's got open APIs and other implications for FinTech. Mm-hmm. Equally, I, I'm pretty sure that they will champion any aspect of technology and finance to be focused upon first foot first in London, just because they want to continue what they've been doing for the past decade. So. PSD2, to be honest, is going to be number one priority to maintain
3: parity with the European requirements. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I think that the uncertainty, if, hey, you know, startup life, fintech life is full of uncertainty. Um, so if, if there's any size of organization that's best positioned in order to look for new opportunities, you know, new new business uh, approaches, then it's small fintech startup. I think it's, it's a much more interesting question for the the larger organizations the incumbent legacy banks we're looking at, at longer term strategies you know over the next three to five years I think that that's a phenomenally difficult uh, place to be in but for for fintech you know that it's you know startups are, are made for this kind of thing
1: I was just going to say Anna
3: and Sophie
1: maybe you can give us a little addition on this but from the perspective of the europeans i've seen letters from you know, the ambassador from Vilnius saying come and move all your operations over here we're very fintech friendly Berlin has been calling London fintech startups to say move over to Berlin do you think we'll see a a big move of companies over to European like-minded centers or do you think London's going to maintain itself I
5: I don't I don't know if it's necessarily going to move yet I think I think it's too early but as you said I was speaking to fintech France which is their lobby group and they met with people from the MIS Minister of the Economy last week and they're drafting a guide to tell people how to set up companies. So obviously that doesn't solve all the problems that France has as a hub for starting startups, but it does make it maybe easier. At least it makes people that were already there and were thinking of coming to London because, hey, it was just two hours away, a reason to stay. Because I, I'm sure, I mean, I know startups can adapt very quickly, but I don't know what can they, in these months where nothing's decided, what are they adapting towards? what are they if you're big like feeder you can say we're going to get a license everywhere and it's fine but if you're just starting up are you, I just see it as a bit more complicated.
4: I fully agree with, uh, with Anna. Like, why would you go in a, in a place where you have more complications, right? Like, what Europe enables a fintech company, uh, is, uh, to have, like, a pool of talents that you can make move and uh, get basically whoever you want. It's a real get, gateway to, okay, like, with the EEA license is 31 uh, countries. If London cannot offer that anymore, like, I, d- I don't know if it will make companies leave the the country, but I would say that I would think twice before launching my own company. Like, I would probably look at their hubs, English-speaking hubs, such as Dublin or Berlin or even even Paris, even if it's not really uh, English-speaking. You raise, interesting point, actually,
0: you raise a
2: really interesting point, Sophie. I think um... The, the idea of you know will we remain in the eea the economic area and then actually what i'm hearing from from a lot of sides is there aren't many objections to that being the case which is interesting is because pa- with with such comes the free movement of people and and free yeah. free trade now that that's an interesting question would that be politically acceptable and and i think that's that's open for debate but if that were to remain then actually things kind of remain very much as they are and and my, and my second point and maybe I'm sticking up for london as, as kind of a as a <laughs> born Englishman. But uh, I, I think also the the startup ecosystem, and I think Anna made this point, was that actually as a startup ecosystem, London gives you incredible access to talent, but not only talent, to access to capital, access to networking. The networking here is, is, is absolutely unbelievable. And also access to, to government and decision makers, because we're, we're a technology center, a finance center, and also a government center, all wrapped into to one city. And I think those strengths remain true, but this period of uncertainty does that make does make that more difficult? And, and I agree. I think some people will be thinking twice. I, I for one, hope that they don't miss out on the opportunity of, of being in London. But then, that said, I can see why people would think twice given given there's uncertainty. And I think um, there's a lot of people pushing for certainty
1: I think that's for that key reason. Point there, Simon, and you were at the press launch of the book last week, where we talked a lot about Brexit. Um, Jason was there as well. And I thought a real point came home for me out of that conversation, which was. Uh, What's the alternative if people want to move fintech away from London because we've had this Brexit vote? And the answer is fragmentation of the talent pool. Where is it going to go? Dublin, Berlin, Paris, Stockholm? I mean, the reason why London is so successful is it's got the – concentration of the structure of all of the aspects of what's needed to give you the regulatory, the legal, the compliance, the technology, the financial insights that you need to get startups started. You don't have that concentration, particularly across such a broad brush of financial services in those other cities. So you end up with FinTech fragmentation rather than concentration. And I think the concentration, just as a point you mentioned there is is key because you can literally tap on anyone's shoulder within a few minutes and find out the answer.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I think the the uh, the only sign I'd say, you know, like talent policy and demand are not going to be changing, are they? I think the uh, for every reason that you guys have all said, it kind of feels like everybody who is here will want to sort of see those things continue. I think the only sort of chink in the armor that we might see is is from a capital perspective changing, you know, through these sort of uncertain times and you know, the the kind of direction we're sort of heading around, um, you know, potential recession and investment, both from a bank's perspective and from a capital investment perspective, potentially we might start kind of a slowdown on capital investment in fintech in in London. But I do believe that, you know, most of the people that are probably spelling the doom of of London as a fintech capital, probably are the ones who have the most to benefit from, uh, from that being the case and moving it somewhere else, isn't it? So, what I would sort of say is you know as a as a sort of a conclusion and it maybe make sense does, does anybody you know who who thinks that actually fintech is sort of capital uh, status of uh, london's capital status of fintech globally is kind of under challenge at this point you know do we think there is going to be a major change or do we think actually there's going to be a lot of waiting and seeing and actually arguably it will just play out the way it is today very
2: quickly, David I think it's eroded slightly, but there's a real opportunity to uh, kind of
4: retain that and
2: grab it by both hands and make sure it's maintained but that opportunity window won't last for long and i think that those voices need to need to be kind of speaking loudly uh, in in the near future i don't know what the rest of the call thinks
3: I, i i think that it's that it stunts new growth now i think it would be very phenomenally difficult to you know to create that next wave and for for how long so i think that there are you know medium-sized, larger startups, you know, moving on to the kind of bigger players that, you know, that have some time. But starting a, a new fintech venture now, is going to be extremely difficult. So how do the, the sort of trade bodies, how does the government sort of affect that? And I think it also depends somewhat on what the, the other fintech centers do. You know, if Berlin and Dublin start to make a kind of full court sort of press, then I think London's stopped for the moment and it's how far ahead is it, and can it get back to some kind of velocity?
5: Okay. I, I think it really depends on, on what happens to London as a financial centre more broadly, right? Because some of the reasons, that, some of the reasons why it, it, fintech is at risk are the same reasons why you might think some big finance firms might leave. So, I think that will be very important to see who goes where, if they go anywhere.
0: I agree. Sophie, what's your, what's your view?
4: I agree with, uh, I absolutely agree with Anna. I think it will depend on what happens to to finance as a a global hub, because like the ability to reach out to easy, to large financial institutions, to headquarters, to decision makers, and also tap into the talents of those industries are crucial for the development of FinTech.
0: And on that note, we'll sort of feel that life will go on, which is, which is quite nice. It kind of, like I say, I definitely wasn't there a week ago, but having sort of progressed through the change curve, then I think I've sort of chilled out a little bit, which is nice. So what we'll do, so thank you very much for, for our guests joining us today. Uh, so Anna, thank you very much for coming along. Sophie, thank you very much for coming along. If you'd like to have a look at more of what um, Anna writes, you can find her at www.efinancialnews.com or you can follow her on Twitter. And Sophie, obviously, we at feedall.co.uk and would be great to sort of learn how this sort of plays out in terms of all of the changes coming through. If you'd like to get in touch with us at Fintech Insider, if you drop us an email at fintechinsider at 11fs.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter at fintechinsider1 um, and we look forward to sharing with you what the um, upcoming guests are and upcoming news will be. So thanks very much for for everybody joining today and uh, look forward to talking to you soon.